Sego Tanze, and welcome to episode four of the Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation podcast, Non-Indigenous Understandings of Land. The following discussion offers a critical perspective on the Western and colonial ontologies which have historically dominated our understandings of land and land rights. We begin with Alejandra Mancilla from the University of Oslo and her paper, A Continent of and for Whiteness, White Colonialism and the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. Next, we will hear from Kirsten Reibold from UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, on the cultural and historical perspective of welfare egalitarianism. Finally, we will hear a presentation on the theoretical understandings of Indigenous land rights and state territorial rights from Margaret Moore of Queen's University. Yeah, so thank you very much. Thanks for staying uh, until 4 o'clock. It's been a pretty intense day. I would like to thank the organizers, Kirsten and Margaret. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here, and it's been a super interesting day. Um, and I think I will follow uh, Janice's advice in the morning that one should say where one comes from and uh, why one is here. And very briefly, uh, I was born two hours away by plane from Antarctica, so maybe that's part of the motivation of this project. Uh, but that's Punta Arenas in Chile, and uh, I studied uh, philosophy, and that's my background. I did my uh, PhD in global justice, but then I got interested in territorial rights. I've always been interested in territorial rights coming from such an empty place like Patagonia. And uh, this project, in a way, is trying to ask the big general questions in a specific place, which is Antarctica, but it's also a very special place and very sui generis. It's the last place on Earth where territorial claims are not settled. So you can still go there and make your claim uh, first occupation, like Lockean fashion, pure Lockean fashion. So in that sense, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, so I'll, straight, uh, I'll jump straight into the matter. Uh, I'll say something about the Antarctica for those of you who might not know anything about it, uh, which could be many. You don't have to know about Antarctica. And then in this paper, what I try to do is to uh, motivate the idea that there are four ways in which, maybe there are more, but at least four ways in which colonialism in Antarctica was white. Uh, it's a kind of playful paper. It's not the kind of paper I'm used to writing. It's actually very short. It's called a Critical Intervention for a Special Issue on the 60 Years uh, of the Antarctic Treaty, which are, uh, it's just this year. So uh, many things are grand claims that don't have much argument behind. I'm sorry for that, for those of you who read the paper, but I'll, make, I'll do my best to, yeah, uh, to motivate those claims. So I'll start with a short quiz. Uh, those who have been subjected to this before, don't say anything, please. Uh, but yeah, how many countries claim Antarctic territory? Five. Okay, go. What countries? Australia. Australia, 42% of the whole continent. Chile, there we go. Argentina. Argentina. The States. No, they have a potential claim, but they don't claim anything. No, they are early participants, but not. Britain. Yes, UK, of course. New Zealand. Yes, well done. One more, two more to go. <laughs> I forgot to say I'm, I work at the University of Oslo. Norway, Norway and <laughs> France. So that's it. Well done, yeah. So those are the claims. Uh, there are three overlapping claims, which is Chile, Argentina, and the United Kingdom, and no wonder it's the Antarctic Peninsula. It's the easiest and most accessible part of the continent. The part west of Chile is unclaimed, so that's where you can go and stake your claims if you're interested. Uh, what is the status of these claims today? Does anyone know? Well, maybe I've, I've already told the answer. Um, they're frozen. <laughs> which means... 
so long as a treaty lasts, uh, these countries are not going to do anything with their claims. So sovereignty is frozen in Antarctica. Uh, but it's a special, it's a very interesting way in which it is frozen because uh, the countries internally are all the time saying Antarctica is a bit of our territory. Uh, there is sovereignty, for example, Chilean sovereignty over Antarctica. That's something that every Chilean takes for granted in a way. Uh, but for the international community, these claims are there and they're suspended so long as the treaty is in force. Uh, and one last question, I think. When was the Antarctic Treaty signed? Well, I said it was 60 years. It was 1959. I'll give away that answer. And do you know how many countries are part of it? How many have signed this treaty? <laughs> 53. Only one uh, African country, South Africa. Uh, lots of European countries, uh, increasingly more Asian countries, but it's 53, and the number is growing. Uh, so, yeah, last question. Was Antarctica part of a colonial enterprise? Yes. Okay. Of course. Okay. Good. You're not, you're not surprised by that. Uh, some people are surprised. Yeah, so... Uh, because of time, I'm just going to assume this, and I'm happy that you agree with me. So Antarctica was part and parcel of the European colonial enterprise since the end of the 18th century, and not just European. So Japanese, for example, were also really interested in Antarctica. This was the whaling time, uh, seal hunting. Uh, it was a resource frontier. So, yeah, I like that uh, picture, but I like to say that that was exactly how they did it. Actually, in Antarctica, you can see that pie being cut much more clearly than in Africa. Okay, so uh, I start from a very broad definition of colonialism and I adapt this from, uh, from Con. So I take it to be a practice of domination. Is it very? Yeah, sorry. A practice of domination through political and economic control over a territory, which standardly included the creation of settlements that kept their political allegiance to the colonizing power. Now you will see that there are no subjected individuals there and some people start frowning because it's really strange. So, if, you know, this was all there was in Antarctica. So, if there were no indigenous populations, can we still call it colonialism? And what was wrong about colonialism in Antarctica? So, this is a question uh, that I want to pursue. Uh, if, there is, if there was colonialism, but there were no indigenous populations, what was wrong? So one thing that was wrong, or maybe not wrong, but uh, yeah, well, yes, it was wrong. <laughs> but maybe I'm not so interested in this uh, whiteness. So it was performed by white men and told, retold by white men, mostly, and until recently, white men and women. Uh, this has been largely explored by lots of very good feminist thinkers, like, uh, like Lisa Bloom and Elena Glassberg and Christy Collis, so I'm not going to dwell on that. So it's been largely documented that uh, Antarctica is a place where white people went to uh, yeah, take territory, to be discoverers and to push uh, humanity forward. That's the Ice Maiden expedition uh, from, the, from the UK very recently. As you can see, it's pretty white. Uh, and the terms, so when the treaty was signed, that's a picture of the, the day the treaty was signed in 1959, it was only uh, white men. Uh, and one thing that is interesting is that some of the most important challenges to the treaty and to how it works have come from non-white sources. So Nehru, very early, before the treaty was signed, was already saying Antarctica should be internationalized, denuclearized, and demilitarized. 
but then something happened and nothing happened. So India just made this claim about how Antarctica should be governed, so be under the auspices of the UN, and uh, it didn't work. The, more recently, in the 80s, uh, that's Mohammed uh, bin Mahathir, the Prime Minister of Malaysia, and he started what was called the question of Antarctica in the United Nations. And basically this was saying, well, uh, the 80s were the time when uh, the countries uh, that were part of the treaty wanted to have a convention for the exploitation of mineral resources in Antarctica. But then suddenly all that was put to an end in the 1990s, uh, and instead we got an environmental, uh, environmental um, protocol, which is very protective. Uh, but in the 80s, everyone was thinking, well, this is the next place to go and drill. So Mahathir was thinking, well, if they're going to do this, we all want to be part. So we want a fair share of the resources, everything that exploited there. Uh, and finally, uh, very recently, the Chinese president has been talking about Antarctica and how Antarctica figures in Chinese politics and how it's going to be a really important strategic resource for the future. Um, so that's the racial whiteness, which I think is kind of contingent to, uh, to Antarctica. I'm more interested in the two whitenesses that come next. White space. So um, contrary to Australia, uh, that was declared terra uh, nullius, this was pretty nullius, actually, at least in terms of humans. Uh, there were lots of, uh, lots of non-humans, but in terms of human habitation, there was nothing there. And uh, as Adrian Hawkins puts it, uh, I think it's very nice how he describes this. It was space, not people, that was at the center of the settler colonial project in Antarctica. And this was done for economic and strategic reasons mainly. So there is um, this Chilean writer there holding a penguin uh, in a tour in 1954, one of the first uh, tours from the military, the Chilean military to, to Antarctica. And he says, uh, Chile must get ready to fulfill its mission in the Pacific era when possession of its Antarctic territory will be indispensable because that territory and continental Chile form one and only geographic system of perfectly defined strategic and economic importance. So there is this idea that we need to take space. And it is white space. I call it white because it's empty. Well, and it's pretty white. Um, but then uh, there is, yeah, this is the whiteness where I think I, I want to say more. Card blanche. So if you know the expression, it's basically a blank card, literally, but it's something done with full discretionary power. Uh, and I use this to, um, in a way, reflect how the claims were made and how politics in general has been conducted in Antarctica. So I would say there are like three moments of three card blanche moments uh, in this, in this uh, colonial project. So the first thing was the unilateral claiming of these ridiculously big amounts of territory. Uh, and this was started by the UK in 1908 with a letter patent, uh, which, as a very ingenious writer said, was as inept in intention as ungrammatical in expression. Uh, they included a bit of Chile and Argentina. Uh, they did it so rashly, so they had to reissue it in 1917. But the other countries followed, and actually Chile and Argentina uh, did not want to be left behind. So they did not appeal to a letter patent, but they appealed to the Treaty of Tordesillas, 1494, uh, signed only by two countries, Portugal and Spain, dividing the new world between them. Uh, and according to this uh, principle of utiposidetis, where the administrative borders are retained when the colonies gain independence, they thought, well, you know, Antarctica, so the Spanish crown had claimed all the way 
to the pole, even though they had never been there. They didn't even know that there was Antarctica at the time. Uh, still, we retain that claim, and therefore, now that we're independent, we have a claim over, the, uh, over that piece that would have belonged to the Spanish crown. And that's the ground of their claims. So it's this creating of rules, ex nihilo, basically, that I find uh, very interesting. Uh, there is also the, so that would be like the first moment, so this creation of, uh, oh, sorry, the unilateral uh, claiming, it's this first moment. Then there is this creation of the Antarctic Treaty that was also made, uh, not unilaterally, oligolaterally, so it was 12 countries that signed uh, this treaty, and they represented only 4% of the total population uh, of the world at the time. There were 12 countries out of 80. 82, I think it was the, the number of countries uh, part of the United Nations at the time. And they said, they explicitly say in the preamble, they are going to be the guardians. They're going to protect Antarctica for the good of mankind. Uh, and this is quite paternalistic in a way, because if you think about it, like Nehru said, well, why not internationalize uh, this territory? Why does it have to be 12 countries that protect it for the future? Um, so I think that that's a carte blanche moment too. And finally, the last, uh, uh, the last um, uh, thing that I would like to describe as having this discretionary, uh, discretionary power uh, that subjects others in a way that is not reciprocal, that, is, that doesn't treat them as equals, is how the treaty is maintained. So there are two categories of members. There are those who vote, that are, that's 29 countries today, and the rest. Anyone can join the treaty, so that's what everyone who loves the, the treaty will tell, will tell you. The treaty is open, and any country can sign. Like if the African countries haven't signed, well, they can come at any minute and sign, why not? The problem is that to really have power of decision, you need to con conduct substantial science, and that is expensive. So at the end of the day, it's only rich countries, or countries that are really willing, like Chile and Argentina, uh, that have uh, science in Antarctica enough to be considered voting parties. Uh, and I find that problematic too. So um, the last, oh yeah, that's the Treaty of Tordesillas uh, dividing, so that's the line dividing Spain to that side and Portugal to that side, the new world was going to be divided by them like that. Yeah, and this is a magpie because I read in the dictionary that uh, Acting as a magpie has this uh, meaning of being hoarding and acquisitive and over like trying to take as much as you can. And I think that that metaphor describes very well how I think they were acting. So it's like really taking much more than what anything could justify in an empty space. The last whiteness is how all this was sold as a very innocent adventure. So from the very beginning, so the, the expeditions by Scott and Amundsen being portrayed as these heroes, like uh, showing the best of humanity. But still today, the Antarctic Treaty is celebrated as this piece of international cooperation uh, where uh, countries have managed to preserve the environment and they have managed to keep it denuclearized and to a certain extent depoliticized. Uh, but there are also tensions, and there are increasing tensions here that I think uh, they cannot just ignore. So why care? So uh, why, why is this problematic? Uh, yeah, what does the whiteness add to the wrong of this colonialism? And I think that, the, as I said before, I think the two whitenesses that are interesting from a normative perspective are this taking of the huge expanses of land, uh, 
that, are, that were unoccupied, and these unequal terms in the creation, in the establishment, and in the upholding uh, of the treaty system. And um, in a context where people are already thinking that on, in 2048, I don't know if you've heard that year, but many think that that's the end of the treaty, uh, and that that's when everyone goes and takes whatever they can, so resource, resources for, up, up for grabs. Um, that's not the case. Actually, 2048 is a year when the environmental protocol may be revised. So there is currently a, mine, a mining ban uh, in Antarctica. But in 2048, that could be revised if some of the countries asks for a revision. Uh, but China is very interested. Korea is very interested. Ukraine uh, has explicitly said that they're interested in doing science to know what kind of resources there are. So I think it's going to be, there's going to be increasing interest and if the treaty system wants to hold its legitimacy, it's very important to acknowledge openly that this was the genesis of the thing. I don't think it helps to say this was all clad in white from the very beginning and it was all a very innocent adventure and we're all the guardians of humankind in Antarctica. I think that's not going to be enough. So in a way, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pushing them uh, to make explicit this colonial origins and uh, yeah, to recognize uh, the implications of that. Uh, I don't think, how much time do I have? So the last thing I, I say in this paper, but I don't develop at all, uh, it's I think this idea, this concept of white colonialism, as in taking empty space uh, with a discretionary attitude, uh, could be used could be, could be used to think about other spaces. So the deep seabed is one, and outer space is definitely another. And here we'd love to have the guidance of a lawyer uh, who explains to me this Space Resource Exploration and Utilization Act of 2015. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was uh, like one of the last things that Obama signed. And it basically says, a US citizen engaged in commercial recovery of an asteroid resource or a space resource shall be entitled to any asteroid resource or space resource obtained, including to possess, own, transport, use, and sell it according to applicable law, including US international obligations. Now, the US says that this does not violate the Outer Space Treaty, which says that outer space is common heritage of mankind. And here, I think that what they're actually doing is laying down the rules for how outer space resources are going to be harvested and used and exploited and profited from. Uh, so I think that this idea of white colonialism is worth pursuing. This is a preliminary exploration, but I would be very happy to, yeah, to discuss further. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, hello. So um, I'll shortly introduce myself as well. Um, I'm Kirsten Reibold. I think uh, Alejandra's and my talk will have two things together. One is um, that we're both concerned with colonialism that is focused not on people but um, on spaces. And um, the other one is that Alejandra very much comes from an Arctic place and I'm at the moment at an Arctic place, so I'm originally from Germany, but at the moment I'm working at the Arctic University of Norway, which is in Tromsø in the Arctic zone. Um, but I'm not going to talk about um, Arctic things. <laughs> so um, what I want to do is um, very much a theoretical exploration um, about in how far uh, global welfare egalitarianism um, can justify indigenous land rights or how much it can make space for indigenous land rights. Um, 
So this is very much based on a version advanced by Chris Armstrong. So his goal is um, to secure equal access to welfare for everyone globally. Um, and he sees land as one of the things contributing to welfare. Um, land can do so as a resource. Um, we can use it for access to water, for food. Um, land can generate income um, that can contribute to welfare. Um, but it can also do so through its place in our life plans. And um, again, it can do so as a resource. We might have life plans that depend on having access to certain resources that generate income or that we use for some things. Um, but it can also be um, cultural attachment or um, attachment in the sense of occupying or living in a certain place. Um, so Chris Armstrong is arguing that states or people should not have permanent and exclusive sovereignty over land and resources, and instead it should be distributed so that equal access to welfare is promoted. Um, that means that for him historic rights cannot justify land rights in the present, and I think that creates a problem for um, a lot of indigenous rights that primarily are justified through or based on um, historic rights. So um, Armstrong tries to make some room for indigenous land rights in his theory. Um, and he says that they can be protected through attachment claims. Um, his background assumption there is that indigenous people are small, locally concentrated groups with strong cultural attachments to land. He says, well, in these cases, um, land is so central to life plans um, that this gives them um, you know, a strong right um, to have this land um, because it contributes so much to their welfare. Um, but I think there are two problems with, um, with this. So the first one is that Armstrong's assumption um, do not hold for all indigenous people. So for example, um, there are many urban indigenous people which might not have the kind of strong cultural attachment and are not locally concentrated groups as um, Armstrong assumes. Um, and there also might be groups, indigenous groups, that are primarily interested in economic benefits that their traditional lands can offer. Um, for example, through some resource exploitation or through renting out parts of their land. So um, they're not appealing, um, first of all, to cultural attachment. Um, and the second problem is that um, in Armstrong's account, all life plans weigh the same. Um, so then it is not clear that indigenous attachments will win out when there's a conflict with settler interests. So if um, settlers need or claim that for their life plans they need this land and indigenous people do that, then it's not clear how, how this is weighted, especially if we think about urban indigenous people with um, less strong attachment maybe to land than indigenous people who are still living on the land. And especially if we take into account that a lot of the most valuable natural resources today are located on indigenous land. So there might be very you know, high stakes. And um, <clears throat> so um, the question that I want to think about is whether there is a way to justify indigenous land rights within Armstrong's theory of global welfare egalitarianism. Um, that does not depend on attachment, because I think there are these two problems with that. Um, and 
So I would like to introduce um, another way that uh, resources and land um, contributes to welfare, um, which is in having a certain expressive function. So um, access to and ownership of certain resources can express an inferior or an equal or a superior status um, of someone compared to others. For example, Adam Smith um, pointed at that when he said, a linen shirt is, strictly speaking, not a necess necessary of life. The Greeks and Romans lived, I suppose, very comfortably, though they had no linen. But in the present times, through the greater part of Europe, a credit, credit, oh gosh, creditable day laborer would be ashamed to appear in public without a linen shirt, the want of which would be supposed to denote that disgraceful decree of poverty, which it is presumed nobody can well fall into without extreme bad con conduct. So here we have um, a certain thing, a resource, the linen shirt, um, which um, lack, where the lack of it um, expresses a certain inferior status where people think that one has um, had extremely bad conduct to not have a linen shirt, uh, where, where he thinks that, in a sense, um, everyone should at least have a linen shirt um, to be um, spared this shame of um, having to appear without it, and so to kind of create at least an, uh, a certain equality of status, one could say. So I'm taking up this idea, um, and I'll come back to it later, with how, how that relates to, to indigenous land. Um, first of all, I would like to talk about, yeah, so um, how that relates to equal access to welfare. So if one, the idea is that if one lacks the rights to or the resources that express equal status, one's equal access to welfare is also diminished. Um, this um, can go through um, a variety of mechanisms. So for example, it can create or express a certain social, social vulnerability. So if I think that I, that the way, way that I'm, see, I'm seen by others where this lack of resources expresses a lower status on others, this might also make me vulnerable in there um, to, to attacks from them because I'm not seen as an equal by them. Um, it might also um, bear negatively on our self-respect. That's a shame that Adam Smith was speaking about. Um, it might mean that we have less chances to cooperate with others as equals. So there are all kinds of things that um, impact or might impact our um, equal access to welfare um, if we lack the resources that express our equal status. Um, <clears throat> so if the denial of certain resources um, confer lower status on um, people, then welfare egalitarianism seems to have strong reasons to provide rights to these resources. Um, and so the question now is, does this also apply to indigenous land rights? And I want to argue that it does. Um, so historically, the taking of indigenous land and the denial of indigenous land rights, Patrick Wolf argues, has been um, very closely linked to settler colonialism with its logic of elimination. So he says that um, settler colonialism was primarily about taking of space, of, of land, and thereby eliminating the indigenous. Um, <clears throat> so it seems that um, purge, and, or like, and then 
Yeah, an intrinsic part of the settler colonialist project was the taking um, of land forcefully. Um, and so thereby, through, through time, the denial of indigenous land rights or the taking away of indigenous land rights um, to me seems to have acquired an expressive function that is linked to a st strong status inequality for indigenous people. So it's um, associated with the denial of self-determination rights, with forced assimilation, denial of political and social rights, all these kind of things that separate indigenous people from, from their land or come about as a, um, as a result of um, taking land and denying them um, their traditional lands. Um, and so this is not just the past, but um, it seems to me that this expressive function is um, being upheld today as well um, by the lack of land restitution that has taken place or the unwillingness of um, a lot of states to, to give back land appropriately and um, the lack of willing or yeah the, the unwillingness to recognize indigenous sovereignty. Um, but also the ongoing discrimination of indigenous people um, in, in many countries still. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll wrap up for the conclusion. So if um, global welfare egalitarianism leads to partial denial of indigenous land rights um, because only attachment-based attachment -based claims kind of generate only weak claims in some cases, um, then it was seems to withhold an important resource for equal status from indigenous people and thereby diminish their equal access to welfare. Um, consequently, in order to ensure equal access to welfare, which is Armstrong's ultimate goal, um, it seems that within his theory, he should, um, he should argue that indigenous land rights should be honored irrespectively of the attachment that the claimants still have to the land because it has this exp expressive function because of their, their history and the meaning that it, they acquired through colonialism and the theft of land. Yeah, thank you. Um. <laughs> my research, really from uh, like 2012 onward, taking on state rights to territory and on territorial rights and the incidents, the various rights incidents that states claim in relation to that. So we're talking about rights to withhold resources, rights to control borders, and of course, the rights to exercise jurisdiction across a geographical space. And so just to be clear, by territory, I mean a political concept, um, not land. Land is that part of the Earth's surface that's not covered by water. But territory, it refers really to the geographical domain of the state or substate sub-state unit, because Ontario has territory too. And it sometimes is assumed that the exercise of jurisdiction carries with it other kinds of entitlements, like the process and so on. So what I want to, so, so it occurs to me that um, within this literature on the state, territory was under-theorized. And I think that's important for us to think about ways in which the Western understanding of territory just can't um, come to grips with um, has to, has to sort of include an account of people's relationship to land in order to properly explain territory. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, you can have this idea that there are different cosmologies, which I, which, I, which, I, which I think is a kind of useful way to think about it, but one problem with that is sometimes one way of understanding something just can't 
come to grips with certain things, and they have to reach for other things, and then when we put those things into the picture, it could have implications for other things. So that's, that, was, that was my kind of thought. So, I, I, so, um, and, and, and I think that this, the idea of hair could have implications for lots of different things, like gentrification, just many different ways in which I'm thinking about people's relationship, the relationship between people and land um, in the Western tradition, which has been under-theorized in the Western tradition, could have implications for other things. So first I'm going to explain why I think um, that the um, territorial rights of states hasn't really properly included land. Um, so until recently, political philosophy was almost entirely concerned with the relationship between the state and citizens. So the duties and rights that citizens had in relation to the state and that of the state to citizens. And that was really all that political philosophy was interested in. And the international law, the Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of States, it just defines states as territorial entities. But then, because it was kind of definitional, we didn't think they had to explain the domain of the state. But without an understanding of the domain of the state, but why the state has the borders it does, there's all kinds of questions that we can't understand, right? We can't understand when states are contesting for the same territory, we can't understand the domain of secession, we can't, um, there's, there's many different issues that are really difficult to understand unless you have that kind of an account. Um, so not paying attention to the spatial element of the state was a kind of problem. So there really were two moves in the literature that could do this. One move was a kind of functionalist move. It says, well, your state, if, if the state is just, then a just state should, is entitled to territory. And of course, that doesn't explain where this territory is, right? And then it looks like the most just state should take over more other less just states, right? And it looks like it's in violation of all kinds of or normal norms, like so. Um, so that that kind of functional argument has had problems. And then the other version of the argument is a kind of Lockean argument, which assumes that individuals have private property rights when they come consent to the state. And we've already discussed a, few, a little bit about the problems with the Lockean argument. But, and it's not just that no state is consented to, it's also that, even, that in most Western political philosophies, we don't even believe in natural rights of property because it's inconsistent with a redistributed egalitarian state. For that, we need the account that the state creates property entitlements, including entitlements, including the tax system, right? So here we have, an account, we have no account of the territory that really makes sense of the fact that states have particular territories, and we need to explain that. So the thought here is that in order to do that, we really need to think hard about something that the Western tradition has hardly thought about, which is what is the moral relationship between people and place? It's the only way to do it. Because the idea that people have property, that's actually the right kind of, it's in structurally the right kind of move, that it puts people in relation to things, in order to state, explain the particular domain of the state. But that relationship has to be the wrong relationship for the reasons I've just given. So then the question is, what's the moral relationship between people and place? This must be important to understand why people not only have rights to self-government, but rights over self-government where? Where are, where are they entitled? And it must be something to do with the, the, the moral relationship between people with each other and also with place. 
So just in terms of literature and political science, people would be moving towards thinking about, well, political science has said nothing about territory, and you have to think about that. And the Western tradition hasn't really been able to cope with this problem. So, um, so one way in which that idea has been done, which functions to link, so there's three things here, right? There's the state, there's land, and there's people. And we've got to put those three things into relationship. So the thought is that the only, that the best way to do it is to look at the relationship between people and place and then theorize the state. And it's that, it's that relationship between people and place that's going to explain where the state ought to have boundaries. Or if not the state, because I'm not fixated on the state here. In fact, as, I go to show, as I, I'm going to try to show, it's actually any jurisdictional unit is that you need to understand the, those, those relationships between people and place. So I think that, so a lot of people that are interested in territorial rights have thought that we need, that there's really two kinds of place-related rights. And one, one idea is that individuals might have just rights of um, residency. And um, rights of residency are just rights that belong to individuals and involve a right to remain at liberty in their homes and their community and not be removed from them. And I think we need that kind of right if we're not to justify expulsion. I think that right also is, helps to explain some of the wrong gentrification and other things that we just generally think are, are, are troubling. And, and this connects with Avery's part of the paper where he talks about how people are resilient. But I think as well, even if not everybody needs that right, that's not how rights work. It, it works if there's a kind of an interest, right, that ought to be sufficiently weighty that to be protected. But I think that in addition to an individual right of residency, there is, and, and this is being kind of uh, emphasized in the literature, a collective moral right of occupancy. And this, I think, is a moral right that groups may have over and above residency rights of its members. And, and they're connected because it's, the, the relationship of people to place isn't just a relationship of individuals to where they live. It's a relationship of groups to place and individuals as members of groups to place which are historic, which can be historic, it can be formed over time, and it, and it might involve um, a number of different things. So, um, uh, and I think uh, you can't understand individual rights, the individual right of residency, without understanding a collective moral right of occupancy. And you, so it's actually not the case that the individual right is prior. And to see that, imagine that somebody, like I have a moral right of residency, and I'm expelled. Okay, if, you have a, if you've been expelled, you have a right of return. But where do you have a right of return to? If your home is destroyed, it's not your home. It surely must be that place that you're at home in the world in the, in, within the moral, within the relationships that matter to you, which is the, it's a kind of a group of place to count. So the residency right kind of relies on collective occupancy rights in order to express its domain. So the thought of well, what justifies these two rights and I think the central idea here is that individuals have a basic right to live in a place, to be free from the threat of expulsion, because living in a place is a background condition for living, people living their lives, for making plans, for having relationships with people. It's not just that we're all physical beings and we all take up space, but we require relationships and commitments and attachments to people there and also to the place. And I think as well that this is in the Western tradition but it's not in our moral or political philosophy. You can find it in poetry, you can find it in songs, you can find it in literature, you cannot find it in our, in our economic theory, 
you can't find it in our political theory, but it's there because people can feel it, can, can become attached to places, right? And, and, and it's, it's a kind of central to their way of life. So, um, and when I say that people have a right of residency, I'm assuming that they have a right of residency in places that they live not unjustly. And, um, and that's actually really a deep problem. And I think this is the deepest problem. And it's a deep problem because over many multi-generations, people who live in a place and their ancestors acquired it unjustly may be attached to that place, which is in no way saying that people, that their historic groups aren't strongly attached to that place. But I think that that's actually a real challenge here, the, the biggest challenge possibly, which, um, and I don't mean that people acquire rights immediately, like they expel people who live there and they get rights. I mean, that cannot be the picture. But it is, a, it is a kind of a problem when we're trying to put moral relations with people in place together. Um, uh, so, and I think that people have collective identities that people have as members of groups. They're not free-floating identities. They're often located in a place because groups' way of life and identity and history are bound up with this place. And so I think that th that's all the justificatory work that a right of occupancy um, implies. And so then if you think, well, we have these occupancy groups, right? So you don't just have a state. The state has to now define its territory. And I'm trying to suggest, in order to define its territory, we have to think of people, groups having rights of occupancy. So what that would mean for the state to be just, right? So for the state to be fully legitimate is not just that the state is in the right relationship to people, but the state has to be in the right relationship to place, right? I said that the state involves the government, people, and land. It has to be in the right relationship to land. And to be in the right relationship to land, it seems to me the picture has to be that there are occupancy groups on the land, and, it, and, they, and, and that they have entitlement to place, and that the right, and in order to be a fully legitimate state, that they're, that, that they have to, that they're, ha that those, the, the occupancy groups themselves have to, in a way, agree to be part of the state. Maybe they're too small to be, and, and so, but they have these jurisdictional rights, and they have various different kinds of incidents that should be connected because they're an occupancy group. So I think that the picture of the state's relationship to place, if it's going to be serious about how putting people in relation to place, it's not that the people are a homogeneous people, right? The people are created with different groups, and the different groups might have occupancy rights over place. So to be legitimate is not just a question for the state to be legitimate vis-a-vis -vis citizens, right? In the old picture, it has to be that the state's authority over territory is legitimate. And for that, I think that the picture of occupancy groups having entitlement has to be a serious part of any kind of project. So I guess just to conclude, I think that, I mean, this might be, this is, if, if we have a different view of what makes a state legitimate, then I think it just requires us to think hard about how, how we could be legitimate over place. And that's not only people who have authority over place, but even maybe what kind of relationships are legitimate over a place, right, not harmful relationships. So, um, I think, so, so, I think that's probably a, a direction that might be fruitful for um, thinking about this, this idea.
Miigwech, Ekozi, and thank you for listening to Episode 4, Non-Indigenous Understandings of Land. Episode 5, Land Restitution as Reconciliation, presents a rich discussion of the necessary movements towards reconciliation in order to move through these tensions around land and land rights. The Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Project is funded by the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and Forskningsgradet, the Research Council of Norway. We would also like to thank the Department of Political Studies and the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's University and Globalizing Minority Rights at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, for their sponsorship and organizational support. Special thank you to CFRC Kingston for their assistance in coordinating this podcast and to traditional artist Patty Kusterock. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.